Well, if you have your Bibles, I urge you, I invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 22. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 22. If you don't have your Bible, the words to our sermon text today from Isaiah 2 are available for you in the worship guide or bulletin that hopefully you received when you arrived, or hopefully you have that was emailed to you, uh, those who are live streaming with us. As we open up God's Word, whatever the means may be, whether it be the Bible, a worship guide, an app on your phone, whatever it may be, we just hope that God's Word is open before you as, as uh, I don't have anything of, of great significance or of power to say in my own self, but we open God's Word and find treasures forevermore for our souls and for our church. And so may you open up before you and Let's pray and ask God's hand upon our study of His Word. God, would you bring glory to your name through the church's study of your Word? Show us the truths that we must see here from Isaiah 2. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Mathematics professors across the world are facing a crisis. Hagamoro Bungo a Japanese company, which for those of you that don't speak Japanese means Hagamoro Stationery, closed in 2015. You see, Hagamoro Bungo sold Hagamoro chalk, which was known worldwide as the highest quality chalk that could be found. Math professors love it. Teachers and professors from all over the globe love Hagamoro chalk for its clearness, for its strength, for its feel. One professor commented that Hagamoro chalk is so pure that a false theorem cannot be written with it. Another said that he thought when he wrote with Hagamoro chalk compared with general chalk that you might find in a classroom that has not tasted the goodness of Hagamoro chalk, he thinks the mystery ingredient to this chalk is nothing less than angel tears. Now math professors all over the world find themselves scouring the black market of stationery seeking to secure all of the Hagamoro chalk that they can find. And make no mistake, it's out there. Before Hagamoro Bungo closed, enterprising academics and entrepreneurs made sure to buy up as much of the chalk as they could. Some have it stored at their homes or at their offices, and now they sell it at marked-up rates to those desperate professors who know that they cannot go back to the cheap classroom chalk that they once knew. You might laugh at the idea of somebody feeling as if they just can't use another chalk after they've had Hagamoro chalk. But you probably laugh from a place of slight insecurity because we all know what it is like to face a crisis as relates to our future. In fact, what we know of our future, like a chalk supply that is drying up, will shape our present, a dramatic push to find all the chalk that we can find. How we understand the future shapes how we approach the present. In Isaiah 2, we get a glimpse into the future that can only be found via the divine communication of God. And that glimpse into the future forces us toward wide-eyed awareness of our own hearts today. 
And what Isaiah, what the Lord is going to show us through Isaiah, let me say it this way, is that the future glory of all nations worshiping the Lord must be our warning in this moment to forsake present idolatry that would bring about our destruction. Let me repeat that. The future glory of all nations worshiping the Lord, so our eyes toward the future, future glory, nations worshiping the Lord, must be our warning in this moment to forsake present idolatry that would rob us of that future and bring about our destruction. Isaiah 2 shows us two options as we understand our present and our future. One option is that future glory shapes our present focus. The second option is that present idolatry wrecks our hope for future glory. Let me say that again. Future glory shapes our present focus, or present idolatry wrecks our hope of future glory. First, let's look at future glory shaping our present focus. Isaiah 2 begins with a stunning depiction of a prophetic future of nations coming to the Lord. In fact, let me read Isaiah 2, 1 through 5, and then we'll examine it closely. Follow along and see the beauty of that which Isaiah writes. The word of, that Isaiah, the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples." And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. For as stunningly beautiful as Isaiah 2, 1 through 5 might be, you might be asking, well, what does this mean for me? How do we understand these prophetic visions of Isaiah in light of our present state today? This can be a difficulty that you face in reading and understanding the Bible, specifically with questions of prophecy in the Bible. And so let's look at this by asking questions about future glory from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, with a question of kind of when, what, who, and why as we seek to understand this. First, when, Isaiah writes in verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days. So Isaiah is writing that this mountain of the Lord shall come upon the earth in the latter days. When you think about latter days, uh, it'd be wise for us in this context, in this day and age, to think both today, our present, as well as tomorrow, our eternal future. Here's what I mean. The Bible simply describes, the, when, when you see the Bible in prophecy, right, of like the latter days, as, that's simply the time after Jesus' earth, earthly life and ministry and his ascension to the throne of God. So in one sense, we, the church, on this side of Christ's earthly life and ministry, we are living in the latter days. You could look at Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2, which helps to note that. But I also think that this prophecy of Isaiah serves to spur us on in future hope of the continual unfolding and eventual full accomplishment of God's redemptive purposes in the world. 
And so when will this mountain of the Lord come? In the latter days. Now and tomorrow. Might sound a little odd to you? Hang on. So what is it? Verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days, look at verse 2, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. The mountain of the house of the Lord established as the highest of the mountains signifies the reign of God over all the false gods of this world. Throughout history, humanity has situated her gods on the mountains, right? In Greek mythology, Zeus dwelt on Mount Olympus. In Hinduism, Mount Meru is is the believed spiritual origin of the deities. Tribal deities of Asia believed that Komalumba, or Mount Everest, was the goddess mother of the world, and deities would come from her. It's natural, right, that people would believe that the peaks of mountains are where one would meet the gods who are in the heavens. But Isaiah is saying that the God of Judah and Jerusalem, our God, brothers and sisters, the God who created his people is the one true and supreme God. And look at how verse 2 continues. The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations will what shall flow to it. And here's something that history affords us the opportunity to grasp with a clarity that Isaiah's audience simply did not have. When you think or when you ask, where is that mountain today? What is that mountain today? Well, look a little closer at verse 2. That mountain shall be established as the highest mountain of the Lord. Isaiah is saying it will be established. It'll be, so it's, it's not a physical mountain as Isaiah was writing. So we have to do a brief biblical theology of mountains to understand what he is saying here. But hang on, this is, this is going to blow your mind, okay? We have, and, and a biblical theology is a study of what the Bible teaches across the span of the Bible about a specific topic or a specific theme, okay? So in Genesis chapter 22, when the Lord tested Abraham and told him to take his son Isaac up on Mount Moriah, uh, eventually Isaac, he was supposed to sacrifice Isaac or be prepared to sacrifice Isaac. Isaac was spared and the Lord provided another sacrifice, in Genesis 22, verse 14, it, we, are, we, we are told that it was on this mountain that the Lord said a sacrifice would be provided. Move on to King David in the, in the Old Testament. He conquered the Jebusite city, which became Jerusalem, which was on a mountain. And it was a city on a mountain. It was known as Mount Zion. Now, David wanted to build a temple on Mount Zion, but the prophet Nathan told him it was not to be done. Nathan told David that his son would build the temple. Now, here's where Scripture gets astonishingly captivating. David's son, Solomon, built a physical temple on Mount Moriah, the very same mountain that Abraham originally took Isaac on, and it was promised that God would provide a sacrifice. But fast forward to Jesus, and this is possibly, possibly the same mountain, the same, definitely the same area where Jesus himself died. Right where it was promised that God would provide the ultimate sacrifice to atone for his people's sin, we see in Scripture like, that places like tabernacles and temples that were built by human hands were but shadows and illusions of the true temple of God. So when the people of God would build a temple or a tabernacle, it was a place where the presence of God was supposed to dwell amongst his people. And just as the same idea as mountains where we meet the gods, but the true temple of God, remember this is where God dwells with man, it, what Isaiah is starting to allude to and what we have the benefit of Scripture showing us is that the mountain of God, the temple of God is not a structure, it's not a mountain, but it is a person. It's Jesus. So when Jesus died on the cross, 
when the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and we learn in the book of Hebrews that we now enter the presence of God, not through the sacrifice of animals or through a physical temple, but through Jesus. So the mountain that Isaiah is prophesying is not a literal physical geographical mountain, but as Hebrews 12, 18 tells us, we have come to Jesus, the perfect Mount Zion, where God dwells with man, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God. And so Isaiah, the mountain of the Lord, is Jesus himself. And at the end of verse 2, he says, All the nations shall flow to it, and many peoples shall come. Do you see what Isaiah is saying here? This glorious Christ who clears the path between God and man via his own blood, he stands triumphant for people from all nations to come to him, to sit under his rule, to find life in his name, and find peace and rest for their souls. And look at what that peace and that presence of God upon his people looks like, beginning in verse 3. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of, this, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now, we just toured through the mountains of the Bible, but let's springboard back to Genesis chapter 1. And this is one of the wonders that we're going to see in the book of Isaiah, is that if we journey closely with our eyes open to our surroundings, Isaiah is going to help us learn all about our Bibles and how they turn, turn together, how, they, how, how, how our Bibles and all the books and all the themes, and all these things fit together to help us see our Lord God all the more vividly and understand ourselves and our world all the more clearly and worship Him all the more fully. But Isaiah chapter 2 helps to echo from Genesis chapter 1. It looks back to creation that God deemed to be good. And it looks ahead to the latter days when goodness or the absence of sin will be restored. In Genesis chapter 1, the people of God dwelt in a garden where they knew the presence and relationship with God. And now look at verse 4 and see the promise of the garden to come at the mountain of the Lord. Verse 4, he shall judge between nations and he shall decide disputes for many peoples. And listen to this. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn any more. Do you see what Isaiah is saying here? Tools of war are going to be turned into gardening utensils. Brilliant Isaiah scholar Alec Matir writes that this is no accident. The choice of agricultural implements is symbolic of the return to Eden. People write with God again. The curse of sin is removed. The end of the serpent's dominion has come. It is an ideal environment. Here's what Isaiah is showing us in Christ. The disagreement that you had this week that still sticks in your mind. One day, every disagreement or misunderstanding that you know in this life, dear Christian, will be nothing but a faint memory. Maybe like a dream that you can only remember the outline of, but no details. 
even the wars of our world, the evils that human beings have perpetuated upon other human beings, they will be nothing but distant echoes drowned out by the pleasures of the presence of Christ. Isaiah 2 is telling us that we can anticipate a day when ballistic missiles and automatic weapons and machetes used for violence will be no more, and we will be in the garden of God yet again. Now, why is Isaiah telling us about the mountain of the Lord and having us to anticipate this new creation in Christ? Why is Isaiah showing us? Great, great vision, Isaiah. What, what is the point of that future for me today? Well, we see that so that we may know how to live as a church today, as verse 5 says. Look at verse 5. Oh, house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah is presenting future glory as a beacon to guide our journey through the foggy harbor of life in this fallen, sinful world. There's a dramatic connection between verses 3 and 5. In Isaiah 3, or in verse 3, excuse me, Isaiah has a vision of a river of all the nations flowing to the mountain of the Lord. Now, this would be clearly supernatural, right? Rivers flow away from mountains. They throw down with gravity. But in this, the nations are flowing all towards the Lord in praise to His name. Isaiah is showing us that the nations that come to the God of Israel is anticipated as Christ is lifted high for the world to see, and supernaturally they are brought to praise His name. And there is a role that we, the church, play in it. Look at this in verse 3. Look at the urging for others to join the people of God in this journey. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. We have a happy duty to invite those around us, to invite the nations to come to Christ and live, to re-enter the garden where Christ, the Prince of Peace, He reigns supreme. Does this not infuse us with missionary and evangelistic responsibility, brothers and sisters? And see this, it's through the local church that this unique urging to come to the mountain of the Lord is made known. Isaiah is telling us that our otherworldly hope in the Lord Jesus will be compelling to the nations around us who do not have such a hope. The greatest way we reach our community and our world, hear this, brothers and sisters, the greatest way we reach our community and the world for the name of Christ is not by trying to make Christianity palatable. Rather, it's in inviting them to a faith that is an invitation to another life. Look at verse 3 again. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The imagery here of the people of God are people who are sitting under the rule and the authority of Christ, and they are walking in his law. They are humbly submitting themselves under his word, willingly, joyfully being changed and being conformed more and more into the image of Christ. And that is a witness to our neighbors and to the nations. This is right in line with the reason for which God has set apart His people. It's for our good, but it is also for His glory amongst those who do not yet know Him. 
Listen to the charge that Moses gave Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 8. And listen to how God gives his word to his people for their growth, but also that they may be a witness in their happy obedience to God before those who do not know God. Listen to this, Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today. Isaiah lays before us the truth that we are a people for whom 2021 is not our home. We are residents of a future day. We are time travelers brought back from the future. What Isaiah is telling us that if we want to understand how to navigate to life today as followers of Jesus Christ, we must set our eyes on on the tomorrow that we actually have in Christ. And yet, for as wonderful as verses 2 through 5 are, we must see the warning of losing sight of that future glory of Christ and idolatrous false glories of today. So, future glory can shape our present hope, or secondly, as we see in the rest of the chapter, present idolatry can wreck our hope of future glory. I'm about to read verses 6 through 9, but note as I begin to read that verse 6 makes it clear. Isaiah is stating that God has rejected His people in judgment, and He has rejected them because they have taken their fill of the idols of their day. Listen to just a few notes of observation as I read verses 6 through 9. God has just said, O come, let us walk in the ways of the Lord. And now verse 6, For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east, and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. So they're full of the influence of other gods. But they are not only full of that, but they are filling themselves with other things that are idolatrous. Verse 7, their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no need to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. You can just go circle if you want it in your Bible or make note of. All the times it says full or filled in verses 6 through 8. They are full, their land is filled, their land is filled, their land is filled, but it's all filled with idols. And then verse 8, they bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Listen to this condemnation in verses 6 through 9 in light of what we read in verses 2 through 5. Matir observes five contrasts between the ideal and the actual that condemn the people of Judah. Listen to this. As you think back to verses 2 through 5, And as you look at verses 6 to 9, listen to these contrasts. In verse 2, the world, the nations are drawn to Zion. But in verse 6, God's people choose to conform to the world. 
In verse 3, the world seeks spiritual benefit at the mountain of the Lord. In verse 7, Zion heaps up material wealth. In verse 4, the consequence of coming to Zion is world peace. In the second part of verse 7, Zion is full of armaments and weapons for war. In verse 3, the world seeks to know the true God and commits itself beforehand to obey Him. In verse 8, God's people are busy inventing their own gods. And lastly, in verse 4, the world is received before the Lord's tribunal. But in verses 6 and 9, God's people are abandoned and denied forgiveness. Do you see how losing sight of the future glory of God leads to present idolatry? God will have none of it. We must unlock in our modern minds the stunning truth that self-sufficiency is not compatible with the supremacy of God. Only when those who are idolatrous and profess to follow God, only when they have been reduced to helplessness by His judgment and then renewed by His grace, only then are they able to testify of His goodness and His glory. How often do we pray for other people to come to faith in Christ? And how rarely do those prayers begin by asking God to humble us of any idolatry that we may hold in our hearts? You see these idols in verses 6 through 9. They're simply things that we hold close to for security or for hope. When we don't hold close to our God. Perhaps beginning to pray for fruitfulness and sharing the gospel with others would begin by asking God to humble you of any idolatry in your life and restore you to life where Christ is not seen in the shadow or the fog of other gods but he stands triumphant over the rubble of the gods that he has triumphed over. You see, here's the thing about the idols of our day and age. Whether it be material prosperity, whether it be personal safety, security, our idols don't want us to denounce our God, but they are used more subtly to detach our hearts from our God. Our idols don't want us to denounce our God. They are used more subtly to simply detach our hearts from our God. The nations are flowing to God in verses 2 through 5 because they have found Him supreme and worthy of their trust and their adoration. And listen to the warning of God in verses 10 through 11 to those who their land is filled with silver and gold and weapons of war and the work of their hands that their fingers have made, God warns them, enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Why would God give such a dire, terrible warning to His people? To His people. 
Follow along in verses 12 to 16. The Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan. Another place you might note in your Bibles, pause real quick, this is all the times God has a day against this, against this, against this. And then these things that he's against are things that appear to be forces of strength, appear to be examples of fortitude of his people. Great technological or, or, uh, innovations and accomplishments. But God has a day against the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the uplifted hills that they would take security against, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. God will not stand for his people to worship or look for security in anything but himself. And it's right here where you might say, aha, I knew it. God is a megalomaniac. He is sadistic and he only wants us to praise him. He is willing to harm and to destroy others just so he can get some weird gratification at the praise of other people. And he is so cruel that he has to have it exactly his way, or like a three-year-old, he destroys and messes it up for everyone else when he doesn't get his way. You might think that. Truth be told, I have thought that before about God. But humor me for one second, or humor God for one second. I am not God, but humor God as revealed in his word. Very clearly, he lays out two paths for human fulfillment. In one sense, he offers you the choice. But what he does and what he's doing in Isaiah 2 is revealing the honesty of the situation. And he asks all of us to take an honest evaluation of our lives, of our days, of our circumstances. No matter how hard they have tried throughout the centuries, world governments and and, uh, United Nations and other entities have not been able to bring an end to war. Defense budgets only keep escalating. Weapons that we build are not getting weaker and weaker. They are getting stronger and stronger. Firearms that we construct are only getting more and more deadly. And no matter how much you clamor for it, or no matter how much uh, contestants in a beauty pageant claim that they want to see world peace, none of us would say we are anywhere closer to it. And God is saying, no matter how much you build your idols towards your own security, you are no closer to it. No matter how much you seek the divine, not just in world security, but in the things that you craft, in the screens that you look at, in the places that you go for your own fulfillment, for your own pleasure, in the the hobbies that you run to, to find purpose and to find meaning, God says He refuses to allow us to find our our, our precious security, our purpose, our meaning, our value, our worth, our praise in anything but Himself. And He says this not because He's a megalomaniac, but because He knows us better than we know ourselves. Look at verse 8. He says their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. God is exposing the folly of of those of us who have been created by God, which is all of us, thinking that we can build a God with our own little hands. 
And what God is showing us is that no matter how much our hearts might desire the poison of that idol, it is poison that does not give us life, but brings us harm. Tolkien illustrated the destructiveness of idolatry in The Lord of the Rings. Do you remember Gollum? He would chase this precious ring, called it my precious. In The Lord of the Rings, everyone who wore this ring that had such great power would eventually unravel and decay in their humanity and as a person and as a being. Tolkien understood what the Apostle Paul understood in Philippians 3 verse 8, and that is that the key to the life is not, of life is not only what we lay hold of, but that which we also throw away. The inconvenient truth is that our sinful idolatry does not make us more in step with what we were created to be. Hear me on this. This is very important. What the, our sinful idolatry does not make us more in step with the person that we were created to be. It makes us less in step. So the warning of the judgment of idolatry is a warning against that which we would ult- what would ultimately be our destruction. So is God just and is He right in promising to destroy our idols and destroy even those of us who give ourselves over to this idolatry? Yes. Why? Because our good is tied up in His glory. He is seeking our ultimate good. Our ultimate good is tied up with His ultimate good. This is what we see as the nations come to the Lord, as they forsake the mountains that are smaller, and they come to the mountain of Christ and find in Him a joy that lasts forevermore. The wonder of what we see in Isaiah 2 and the wonder of of all of Scripture is that the invitation to come to God is an invitation to find mercy and to come to Him and live. But it's an invitation born out of judgment. As I read verses 17 to 19, hear the echoes of verses 10 and 11. And the haughtiness of men shall be humbled. The lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. Moms and dads with your children, preparing them to enter into the world or praying for them as they have entered into the world, your kids or your grandkids, it is good and right to hope for their care and to hope for their provision. But make sure not to present to them a place where their hope is found in anywhere apart from Christ. Jobs and careers make for terrible idols. Christ alone can bear the hope of our souls. So we have two images, people joyfully marching toward the mountain of the Lord because they've come to Him and found life and people clinging to their idols and hiding from the terror of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty. Listen to verses 20 and 21. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship. So they'll cast them away to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. The imagery of those seeking refuge amidst the destruction of idols and the destruction that they face is something to behold. Consider this truly devastating imagery and ask, are you willing to stand up to God in His terror and before the splendor of His majesty? And here's the thing that we see about Isaiah 2. It is an odd outline. 
if I could let you in on a preacher's mindset, you, you, you kind of want to lay out the, the story or what's happening. You want to outline it. You want to kind of end with a place of hope. You want to end with, and look to Christ, which is true. But where's the joyful end in Isaiah 2? Well, the joyful end, I think, is in the sober warning that it's good to feel that weight and the uneasiness of being confronted with our idolatry. And so what is God's exhortation to the people of Judah? Verse 22, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for what account is he? Ultimately, the big message of this, take your eyes off of man. Take your eyes off the idols that man creates. Take your eyes off the idols that man tells you that you need to live and to have happiness. What account is he? Rather, hear the invitation of verse 5. O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. Two options that Isaiah gives us. Future glory, walking in the light of the Lord, shaping our present focus. Or regarding man and the idols that we build and place our hope and our trust in, wrecking that hope of future glory. This is only known and experienced through the life enthralled with God. We say hindsight is 2020, but Isaiah 2 actually gives us a taste of foresight, which must be our 2020 for understanding how to live today. There are professors all over the world who wish they had, wish they had stocked up on Hagoramo chalk. Now they sigh that they did not do so. Hindsight's 2020. but far more significant than the chalk we write with. Isaiah flips this upside down and tells us that hindsight will not be an option one day. A message from the future is a message to look to the future, to the reign of Christ that is to come, but also to know that Christ reigns even now. And we are already on that journey, brothers and sisters climbing up that mountain, delighting in Christ, worshiping Him together, clinging to His Word, being shaped and transformed by the power of His Word from one degree of glory to another. And we are inviting others to come with us. We are inviting others out of the idolatry that grips them in this life. We are inviting others out of the empty promises that a beautiful home and a pick, white picket fence and two and a half kids and a puppy and, a, and, and all the pleasures of this life claim to offer them, but we know find, are found empty. We're inviting them to find their hope and their life in Christ and in Him alone. We're inviting them to join us alongside the future and alongside other nations worshiping the Lord. And this future glory, it must be our warning in this moment to forsake present idolatry that would bring about our destruction. Let's pray. God, would you give us eyes to see and give us hearts to cling. 
Give us souls and Your Spirit's work within us to expose the idols of our heart and to not only expose those, but to invite us to come to the mountain of the Lord, the mountain of Christ that is established and lifted up, and to join that journey, that journey of happy pilgrims flowing supernaturally up the hill to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, He who will bring wars to an end and in whom we will find pleasures forevermore. So, Lord, help us, O house of Jacob, to walk in the Lord in the light of His glory. We pray this in His name. Amen.